Hello and welcome to the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley, which we know now is called The Free Associates. That's right, folks, The Free Associates. Broadcasted everywhere. The two hours are now split into two. First hour, radio theater, Barbarian in the Valley. Second hour, The Free Associates. And by Free Associates means that we can associate with anyone or any idea that we think is relevant or important. But that also, we kind of free associate here. That we see a cloud and we say, hey, that looks like an ice cream cone. Or look into the campfire and say, I see a demon in there. And indeed, I was in a campfire just last night and this morning. In fact, folks, I have traversed the valley in true form. Now, typically, I am just in the basin of the valley. I'm just coming from Florence to UMass. Well, that's a basin. But last night with my buddies, Moylan, Clayton, Jonesy, and Waylon, up in Goshen at Dar with my teacher buddies right on top of a mountain. So this morning, woke up, stumbled out of the tent, got the campfire going, talked a little bit, drove down in Jonesy's Volvo, dropped off at the house. Into the first floor of my house, my daughter and her friend are playing with, I don't know, it's hard to describe, like cupcake dolls or something like that. Up two flights of stairs to my wife's room. Rocky's in there, my little boy Rocky's in there. He's just giving me all this love and all these hugs. Boom, 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 back down, back down the stairs. On my bike, I'm going. I'm gone, man, I'm gone. Now I'm in the basin, I'm on the bike path. It is just so beautiful today, folks. It is a gift to us. Go outside. If you're not outside, go outside. Look outside. It's paradise. And then up to UMass, where the marching band is practicing and playing We Are the Champions, which just makes me feel just so good. Just so good. So good, folks. So we have a really interesting conversation today. We are in the crystal ship. The crystal ship in the basement of the brutalist structure at the center of UMass. And we are disengaging with that campus center and we are now hovering you may see us if you're on campus and you're awake then you look outside your dorm window and you will see us we are hovering above the campus and we will be moving all over the valley today now if you want to join us in this conversation the second half of the hour we'll be taking calls and so if you want to look at the reading go to barbarianinthevalley.com and you'll see a couple readings The discussion today is about privatization and nationalization, but I think it's going to go a lot deeper than that because that's the, those are like fixes. Those are kind of uh, uh, external fixes, but we are going to talk about, Sam Stoddard and I are going to talk about maybe what's at the heart of all this, what we're about to face in the future. So listen to Simpia Diodato, and we'll be back in just a minute. coming back for a conversation with Sam Stoddard. Sam, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Sam Stoddard, I'm a <coughs> visiting assistant professor of political science at uh, College of the Holy Cross in Worcester. Right. And we, we, our kids are friends. 
Yes. That's the in that got you in the studio. Yep. And we've had just great conversations before. Yeah. And you, you, you have a, a vast knowledge about a lot of stuff. And maybe even at the end of the conversation, we can tackle a few current events, too, because there's so much going on out there in terms of the political life of this country. I've basically been breathing it. So Yeah, it's well hard. Like it's hard to avoid. Honestly, and even as a high school teacher, but a history teacher, I have to keep my students informed. Are you getting a lot of questions from your students right now? I'm forcing as many questions You're as forcing? possible. You're forcing? Huh. So, uh, I always want to give my students a forum to talk about these sorts of things. Sure, absolutely. usually I let them choose the topic. Now, are they, are they feeling, are they, but they're not actively asking questions about impeachment or anything like that necessarily? Y- you always have the go-getters. Okay. But, you know, it's, I, I think that, students are a little overwhelmed yeah and you know the thing i always remind myself when i'm talking about these sorts of issues with students is we expect them to be shocked we expect them to be you know overwhelmed by the lack of normalcy you're right um really what's going on is that it feels abnormal to us but it feels completely normal to them huh and so so, huh that's interesting it's it's the politics they've grown up with huh and well, that so, is a good point. Yeah, asking them questions about these sorts of things, uh, I get a lot more resignation than I okay. would hope for. Okay, well, well, we'll come back to that at the end. That is really interesting, and I, your point is well taken, that I'm almost 50 years old, so things certainly don't feel normal to me, but I lived in this uh, strange pocket of normalcy, I guess of a kind, or consistency between 1970 and September 11th, or what, what, whatever mm-hmm. date you want to put it at, maybe the end of the Cold War. Now, we're going to be talking about privatization and nationalization. It was interesting because on the bike ride over, I became very conscious. Oh, that's a privatized thing. I'm on a bike path. The bike path is an old train rail line. May have been private, was, may have been nationalized, went by a golf course in Amherst, right? I mean, talk about enclosure. You know, the commons enclosed for golf. I, got no, I have no problem with golf, but it's a lot of land. It's beautiful land that um, is taken and made usually private, although there are public golf courses, right? New York City has a public golf course. It's a nationalized That's golf course. That's where I learned. That's where you learned golf. Are you a golfer? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Do you know what the- I mean, I'm not good, but yeah. no self-respecting golfer thinks they are. Right. <laughs> it, it, is the one in Amherst, is that private? It looks private. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's just, I've always thought golf was interesting because it, it does require so much land. But it's yeah. also beautiful. Um, so could you do us a favor and just, this first article is really quite brief. Um, but could you describe it? You, sure. What happens is I ask my guests to describe it and then I tear it apart. You know, even though it's the article I chose. You know, I always choose these articles. I'm like, let's do this article. And then I read it. And I'm like, oh, what are they, what are they talking about? So describe it first. So it's um, the alternatives to privatization uh, and nationalization. So it's talking about basically this issue of, of how we treat our commons. Right. And <clears throat> there was a lot of concern in the 1970s that we were dealing with finite resources, that human beings were sapping up far too quickly. And that we were headed for a population disaster. And a lot of graphs would have shown you at the time that by the 2000s, we would be running out of resources. We would be in you know, dire straits. Uh, that didn't necessarily come to pass, at least not yet. Although, wait and see. Population um, is, they do predict, is, is peaking out though, right? Have you seen those studies where they say that 
it's at six billion, it's just going to stop because countries are going to become We're advanced already. enough that they're not having, they don't need to have as many children. It's true seen that. that the population growth yeah. is always in, in the developing countries. And can I, by the way, just a private story about this, just to interject, is that mom, when my mom was pregnant with me, uh, they threw a Christmas party. I was her third child. Mm-hmm. And a woman came up at the Christmas party at the house and accosted my mom for having a third child. Yep. You know, she was like, what are you doing having a third child? Like, that's inappropriate. And that was me in there. So I'm glad my mom went through with it. And it's an interesting side note that in 1971, people were accosting each other at parties saying, what are you doing having a third kid? Uh, I was just talking to my parents about the exact same thing. And I had never heard the story huh. of them, you know, getting together and settling down and then really debating about whether to have children and whether that was a moral thing huh. to do. Which I think is now back on the table. I, I think they're, they're... I think we've lost sight of it. And, mm. you know, when I heard them talking about that, I was sh- kind of shocked and I have two kids that, you know, my wife and I never really had that conversation. No. And we, we should have. I guess so. Although I have to say, having kids, first of all, people can do whatever they want. It's not for me to judge. But for me, having kids forces me to be optimistic. Right. Because it's just like, well, we're going to have to fix... I have these two kids, and I don't really have time to get too pessimistic about this like i'm not sure what the answer is but i know that i'm i've my i put my money's on the table and i can't really get too dark because i got two kids and we're gonna have to figure it out and i like that feeling because you know i I had kids very late Mm -hmm. and so in my mid-30s even before i met my wife i think i felt that darkness more acutely once i met my wife and had kids it was like well i can't even entertain these doom thoughts because I just can't it's not good for my kids but so what did your parents but I actually think that debate's back on the table I think a lot of couples are like I don't know if I want to bring a kid into a world like this or the world that we, they might see in 20 years and, and I think the reason is climate change yeah I and think that's I think a big one when my parents were doing this I think nuclear weapons was probably the yep. first thing on their mind um, is that right and maybe pollution yeah, you're younger uh, than me. Uh, 1980, yeah. Yeah, so you're about nine years younger. So I was in that conversation that had to do with overpopulation. You were in yeah. Cold War conversation. Exactly. Yeah, and now kids are in global warming conversations. And it's interesting because I teach kids now. Most of the kids I teach were born right around September 11, 2001. I know. Yeah. Yeah, well, me too. Yeah, and so... <laughs> Like, that's the conversation that their parents had. Some of them were born on September 11, 2001. And so, you know, I guess every 10 years, there's a, there's a reason to really think about whether we have kids. Now, I'll let you... I did interject there. So, yeah. talk to no, more sure. about that first piece. So, you know, more than 7 billion people, I guess, on the planet now. We're, we're mm. racing our way right towards 10. Um, right? yeah. And then, so how do we... And, and, you know, I do think that there is a natural curve to this graph at some point that goes the other way, but but who knows? Um, so how do we treat the resources that, that we're all living off of? Yep. Um, so the idea of the tragedy of the commons, um, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase yeah, yes. some yeah, of the article. Yeah, absolutely. Paraphrase, please. Um, considering a pasture on which every herdsman every and every one of us in our society has the equal right to graze their cattle. And that pasture is, you know... We see this embodied in the small common spaces we have within our neighborhoods and communities. Yep. And we see it embodied within the air we all breathe and the climate. Um, yep. And the radio waves. <laughs> yeah. Are part of the commons. Right. Yep. Um, at one that is government regulated, as yep. we'll get to. Uh, and so, 
you know, everyone has an incentive then to to suck as much from that commons as possible. Um, since it's open to everybody, any restraint that you exercise, perhaps in a maybe misguided attempt to to, to keep things sustainable, uh, your restraint is then captured up by others, right? That frees mm-hmm. up grass and that commons for others to herd their cattle on, for them to make more cattle, for them to make more Which profits. Which is going to drive and, you and out of business. leave you behind. And, yes. Exactly. Okay. And so this sort of rat race of commons use um, has really gotten us into a rough spot mm-hmm. um, because everybody is encouraged to consume more than they need. Right. And I feel like that's, you know, we we have far too much in our own internal psyches adopted that type of attitude. Yeah. And I worry about that. Um, and so, you know, is this, does this basically spell our inevitable downfall because of the way that we view these things? Or I might like to think that that we're not like like the herdsmen or the cattle. Um, that, you know, cattle do suck up finite resources in ways that which if the earth were populated with too many cattle, the resources would merely collapse. And right, ca- although we talked about if, cattles, if cows ran the world, hopefully they would have a consciousness about their resources. <laughs> and yes. remember, it's the herdsmen who are bringing their sheep to graze. Yeah, exactly. It's not like wild sheep. And... It, it article talks about you're incentivized not just to get grass for your own sheep, but to deprive sh- grass to other. I mean, we see companies do this. Yeah. You know, corporations want to not just, and nations, not just want resources for themselves, but also to deprive resources for someone else. So yes. we're in the Middle East, not because we need that oil necessarily, but we want to make sure Russia or China doesn't set the price of oil by getting it or something like that, right? There's like active... And oil is an interesting one, right? Because oil is often nationalized. And, and finite resources are going to lead people to a zero-sum conception of, yep. of, of their own place in consuming those resources. And so, you know, a lot of this feels so psychological. Yep. And we need to re, rejigger our way of interacting with the land and with how we feel our place is. Because as human beings... Not to, not to discount the cattle. But as human beings, we have a, an ability to nurture land and to foster its productivity in ways that most creatures do not. And so we, right. you know, much like you know, the beaver is famous for this, right? We, we can adapt the land to make it more productive for us. Right, although the beaver's a real pain in the behind, do you know? <laughs> to the other species. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think beavers represent, resemble us more. You know, by the way, New York City's symbol is the beaver. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's partially because the Dutch were after beaver pelts. Like, that was their goal in, in the quote-unquote new world, was to get beaver pelts. But it's an industrious animal. Right. You know, you kind of, I admire beavers in the same way as I admire humanity. Like, <laughs> wow, look at that beaver go. I mean, look at humans. Yeah. I mean, look at what we've done. We've walked on the moon. We have jet propulsion. I mean, all these things. And there's this element of like, wow, look at the mess. Look at the mess that the beavers have done as well. They're right. industrious. But they make a big mess and they ruin ecologies for other animals, etc. Right. So we have the power like they do. Yeah. But we may also be as short-sighted as they are. Yeah, and I think this gets into scale a little bit, um, the conversation of scale, because I definitely think that groups, small groups of people can be... But then... So here's the thing. Small groups it can be aligned, and you know we can be with 30 people and be living on a mountain and pretty much line ourselves up. But what happens is, since there's 
I don't know how many billion people you said this on the planet. It's over seven now. You know, or just the 382 million in the United States or whatever. There's a tragedy of the commons there too, right? Because it's hard to say, well, we're going to make this sustainable here. It's expensive to make it sustainable, etc. And it, no one else is. You know, no, no other group, or not no one, but very few other groups out there are doing it. So now you're trying to do something that you feel is sustainable, but 98% of the population isn't, and you're competing with them. That's a tragedy of the commons, of, of a kind. The, the problem we have is how we conceive of gains, how we conceive of values. Um, yeah. We are never going to come out ahead if everybody is trying to come out ahead in comparison to the other people, right? Right. right. And so what we need to do is... <laughs> I often like to tell my students about Reagan's 1987 United Nations speech mm -hmm. where he talked about... <laughs> and Reagan was possibly losing it a bit by this point. Yeah. But this is a salient point. You know, if, the, if an alien invasion happened, yeah, we would really reprioritize and recognize our com common humanity right. far, far, more, far better. And, and that's the sort of thing that happens naturally in a small community like you're talking about. Sure. Or when there's a disaster. Right. You know, I don't know. Were you in New York on September 11th? In New York State, but yeah. yeah. Well, and this, I mean, I, I moved to New York City a few months after. Yeah, I think a lot of Americans felt it wherever they were, but New York City, I mean, uh, it was biological. Yeah. Biological. I remember uh, when the f first tower came down, everybody walking out of their house at that moment together, like right down the line. And, you know, I, the connection between me and a stranger on the street was, had just become something different. Like biologically, chemically different. So tragedy, disasters, hurricanes. You know, one of my favorite books, and I've brought it up many times on this show, is Sebastian Younger's book Tribe. I love that book. Oh, it's so good. I'm glad you like. I'm glad you've read it, and I'm glad you love it. Yeah, it's, it it really it plays. It's not a directly political book in a lot of ways, but it plays so well, much into I, yes. what we're talking in terms of American politics. Well, and I think it goes deeper than politics, right. which is where we, I think the conversation needs to go, right. in my opinion, because there's something deep. Now, I just want to make a couple of brief critiques of this article, and it's really not fair for me to sit here uh, pouncing on articles, because it's such a short article, it can't attempt to do anything comprehensive. A couple quick things, though, I just thought were interesting and maybe play into this like tightly wound web. He talks about studies that have looked at enclosure in England. And just for our listeners to understand, like I teach this in my history class. This is, you know, the British enclose public lands. They kill the commons and they sell them to wealthy landholders. They consolidate small farms so that the story goes so that large agricultural, not factory farms, but bigger farms can create the food by which industrialization can happen. And in the article, he says... Well, it, it's not really proven that actually more food was yielded by these large farms than these small farms. But this, I would th say, is true. What it did do, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, is that it forced people into factory and into the colonies because they had lost their livelihood. Because there's two things that happen with enclosure. Larger farms get created, but also a labor force in England gets created that pushes people off the land. Again, I'm not saying this is good or bad. But I think that that's an example where, uh, you know, there's multiple, and there's probably 
5,000 other more effects on it, too. I just think that it's important to consider that when you talk about the failure or success of enclosure to industrialize England. You're not going to have an industrialized England without removing all these uh, workers from the farms and saying, go get a job in Manchester or go to the colonies. That was one thing. And the other thing which we talked about, you know, he's looking for examples of things that are in the commons now that work. And he uses Wikipedia. And I just have a problem with that because Wikipedia is not going to suffer the same scarcity. It's not a resource. Well, yeah, it's not a finite resource. You can just keep adding to it. You know, I suppose it's on the internet. It requires electricity. You know, if you might break the internet if you put on too many articles at one time. I'm not sure. My consumption of Wikipedia does not harm your consumption of Wikipedia. Yeah, and my Frankly, addition, it's actually made the... Right, and my become additions, a more reliable source. It's just not grass on a field. Right. It's virtual. And that's an interesting thing to look at as well. And, uh, you know... Maybe when we're talking later about like the social up thing, I wonder, uh, well, maybe we're getting, let me just lay this out and just, because I think you and I uh, are simpatico on this, um, that resources can only be utilized like effectively, efficiently, and with care when our sense of scarcity and hierarchy evaporates. Is that, is that a fair kind of comment? Because if we have scarcity and hierarchy, we're always going to consume more. It's the tragedy of the commons. So I think a lot of our sense of scarcity is probably manufactured within yes. our own psyche. Oh, and by, and by advertisers and, and, and corporations. Right, and, and we're like naturally risk-averse. And so there's a lot of what we would consider benefit, financial gain, to be had in our societies by, by incurring these types of feelings in people. Yeah. Um, and so... Scarcity is really, the concept is really dependent on what you're worried about running out of. And I worry that a lot of the things that we spend our time focused on are things that are tangential to our survival and maybe detrimental to our happiness. Yeah. So here's the cool, my cool idea is what if, like, I, I worry that we're going to be able to fix what feels like a deeply biological issue in humans is yeah. I'm going to make an argument that... I know, this gets depressing. Well, okay, but I'm not going to be depressing. I got, I got the solution. I have the solution. And it's in, it's in this thing that we think is the enemy, which is in cell phones and the internet. Because what if, what if we transferred all of our hierarchical... Oh, oh, he just showed me his phone, folks. Hand that phone over. So you have a, a looks like a 1987 non-flip phone, huh? I would say it's 2007. Oh, 2007. <laughs> I'm so impressed. You know, I've talked about this on the show before. I'm looking, folks, at like a really ancient phone. You can't access the internet. But uh, you know, I think you're part of the problem. I'm going to talk about this in a second. Oh, do you know, tell. You know who else doesn't have a flip phone? Sebastian Younger doesn't. He has one of these phones, too. I heard now, he's, he's a very privileged person in many ways, and he's, he's gone over to Afghanistan and embedded himself in the Korangal Valley. So he has props and credentials, and he's able to get away with it. Um, I remember I was in uh, Internet. I was a web designer in 2000, and I remember them talking about how everything was going to happen on the phone in the future. Right. And I just thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I thought they were totally out to launch. Because of these phones, I was like, you know, this is the kind of phone that you, if you're texting, you have to hit <laughs> five, three times to get an Oh, no, slide it like open. That. I've got a full keyboard now. Oh, you have a but full I, keyboard. I, I, oh, I was geez. very good at that in the past. We're going to make this the picture for the blog post, folks, is, <laughs> is Sam's phone here. So, um, but, well, here's my argument. What yeah. if... What if we accept, you and I accept, that biologically, 
if people in larger groups outside of nomadic groups, okay, because that's what tribes about, right? Is that yep. in a group that small, hierarchies can't present because they're just not big enough for hierarchies. But if we're living in modern civilization, could we find a way to make all of our sense of scarcity and hierarchy virtual? It, that wouldn't, at least that wouldn't chew up resources. So I'll give you an example. People will pay a ton of money for a phone number. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that, but like for some reason in Iraq, that's a big thing right now. People will pay $20,000 for the right phone number. People try to get 212 phone numbers and they'll pay for them. They're like vanity phone numbers. Yeah. Right. And also like there's a virtual status out there that has to do with things that I don't actually like, like Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that. But the argument for these things is at least they don't really pollute because they're virtual. Do we try to reprogram 7 billion people, including ourselves first, because we have to deal with ourselves first? Or do we just make status race, by race I mean like the race to get more, not racial stuff. Do we just make that virtual? Or you're masking the problem. Yeah, we're masking the problem, but at least we're, we're cooling off the CO2s while right. we're doing it. Right. I mean, yes, I'm masking the problem. We're I'm inevitably not having the problem. these psychological issues, and we need to channel them in a less harmful direction, is what you're saying. Well, if, if, if the time is now to really consider that like, we're up against, like a, the clock is ticking, and we're up against something really significant, and you know, in so many parts of the world, things that gave people meaning is, have evaporated, okay, including religion and other belief systems has been replaced by the marketplace and also automation is taking away jobs and all of these things that are really serious. Yeah, it's a stopgap measure. You know, you basically say, all right, we're going to create hierarchy and status in a virtual realm. People will be just as happy and just as miserable with it as they would if it was physical stuff. And that'll get us at least to slow down the physical consumption of the commons. The problem with hierarchy and, and striving for resources over others and these types of fulfillments is that we're not finding them fulfilling. I agree. It, but this, what you're saying, sounds like a recipe for people being at least as unhappy as they I'm are I'm okay now, with that. If not more. Yeah, no, no, I'm totally okay with that. And, <laughs> and I, I recognize in your eyes, I recognize in your eyes that, that you're, you think I'm on to something, but you're also um, concerned about me. Uh, I think you have a solution to one problem and you're ignoring what I consider yes. to be just as serious. Oh, I, I think it's just as serious. But one has a clock ticking on it. The resource problem has a clock ticking on it. The spiritual problem is, if, if we're not around... The spiritual problem is harder to solve. Oh, it's way harder to solve. And right? But we might need a thousand years for that. We might need at least a hundred. So if I want to just keep the planet going, my plan's not a bad idea, right? It's a bit of a band-aid. It's, well... But I would think it's more than a Band-Aid, though, because if it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's like a cast or something like that. Like, we've got to sure. be able to keep going. And so, uh, you know, think about it. We're going to have a little bit of a musical break here. And then when we come back, we'll be happy to take calls. So I just want to give you that number, 413-545-3691. Okay. And this is a public resource here, and we're really happy to hear your voice on it. So consider giving us a call, 413-545-3691. That number, my friends, remember it always, especially on Saturday morning between 11 and noon, is 413-545-3691. 
Enjoy a little Copeland. I thought it was an appropriate choice. John Henry, folks. John Henry. We'll be back in a minute.